what I have learned about moving into the commercial sphere. And I've also written for children. So I've written literary fiction for adults, fiction for children, commercial fiction for adults and nonfiction. There is no easy book. Yeah. The easiest is the nonfiction for me, but every work of fiction will take everything you've got. Mm. So whether you're writing as mini dark in a commercial context or whether you're writing as Danielle Wood in a more literary context, you are still giving that book Mm. your heart, soul, lungs, liver on a plate. Mm. It doesn't make any difference. It's still going to take everything. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast. So please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Welcome to another episode of Rights for Women. I'm actually recording this introduction at Charlotte's Pass in beautiful Arlberg Lodge where my husband and I and the fabulous Penelope Janu and her husband have come away for a lovely weekend away in the snow. So if you hear a little bit of background noise as I'm doing the intro, that is why there's little people running around the corridors. Not my little people, but some little people out there making background noise, but I will forge on. So this week's episode is a new release feature author episode with guest host Cassie Hamer chatting to Minnie Dark about her latest release with Love from Wish & Co. Minnie is the author of three commercial fiction novels, The Lost Love Song, Starcrossed, and With Love from Wish & Co., It sounds like a fabulous book after listening to Cassie chat with Minnie about it. So I'll give you a little bit of an idea of what the book's about. At Wish & Co, a boutique offering a bespoke gift buying service, Marnie Fairchild has a reputation for finding the perfect gift that will melt any recipient's hearts. Her talents have even caught the attention of wealthy entrepreneur Brian Charlesworth, who relies on her exclusively to buy gifts for his family, his wife, and also his mistress. One September day on the wrapping table at Wish & Co are two parcels, one containing a perfect 40th anniversary gift, the other an exquisite birthday present. What could possibly go wrong? Minnie Dark is the alter ego of literary author Danielle Wood. In this fabulous chat, Cassie asks Minnie about her new release, her writing process, the whole line and research that she's done around this idea of gift giving and what it's like to have a dual identity as a writer. Minnie slash Danielle has a really interesting take on how to use an alter ego to connect to the voice of your story and I found that part of the chat particularly fascinating. It's great to have Cassie Hamer back on the Convo Couch at Writes for Women. Cassie is the author of three women's fiction titles, After the Party, The End of Cuthbert Close and The Truth About Faking It. She's been a previous guest host on the podcast when she talked to Megan Albany about her novel, The Very Last List of Vivian Walker. And of course, she's also been a guest in a recent episode where we talked about writing in multiple viewpoints in her latest novel. So grab a cuppa and enjoy this chat with Cassie and Minnie. And don't forget, if you do enjoy it or any of the episodes you listen to, it would be great if you could take a few minutes to write a review, wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts, so that others can find the episode and find the backlist of Rights for Women. And just a little heads up on coming weeks, if you tune in next week, I'll be chatting to Sophie Green about her latest release, The Bellbird River Country Choir, and watch out in future weeks for a special chat between Rachel Johns and fabulous Canadian author, bestseller Maisie Yates, who's going to talk about 13 things she's learnt about writing over the course of her amazing career. But right now, join Cassie and Minnie Dark on the Rights for Women Convo Couch. 
It's such a pleasure to welcome Minnie Dark to the Rights for Women podcast today. We're going to be talking about her lovely new release with love from Wish & Co. Minnie, congratulations on the book. How are you feeling as it's about to be launched into the world? It's always a strange moment when a book is about to actually arrive with readers because, as you would know, Cassie, we've already been through quite a long process with the book and it feels like something we might have done a while ago. So there are ways in which I have to circle back to an earlier version of myself to be ready to talk to readers about it. It's probably the version of yourself about two years ago. The main character in this book is Marnie Fairchild and she is a bespoke gift buyer and I'm wondering how did Marnie first come to you is she based on someone or is she a figment totally of your imagination I'm quite clear about how Marnie came into being there was a time quite a few years ago when I was really struggling with the demands of my day job because like most writers I have had various day jobs over the years and the demands were all seeming a bit too much and I was thinking I need a different kind of day job and my imagination got to work on this, I think, and came up with all kinds of crazy ideas. And one of the ones I really loved, even though it was probably incredibly impractical, was the idea of becoming a personal gift buyer. And I thought, wouldn't it be a great job to get wealthy people, probably wealthy men, I thought, to employ me to come up with gifts for all the people in their lives, the women in their lives, their children, their siblings, their godchildren, their friends, all the people that men often struggle to find gifts for. Um, I thought that would be a great job. Of course, I never did become a professional gift buyer. Instead, I invented Marnie and got her to do it for me. Now, Marnie is very good at what she does, but the book really takes off when she makes a big mistake. So can you tell us about that? I can. So Marnie has a particularly good client. His name is Brian Charlesworth. He pays her a lot of money to just take gifts out of his life. He loves having this set and forget mechanism. The way Marnie operates is that she effectively stalks people on social media and in whatever way she can to work out what would be the perfect gifts for the people in, in her client's life. So there comes a particular day when she's preparing a gift for Brian's wife for their 40th wedding anniversary and preparing a gift for Brian's lover who is celebrating her 65th birthday. And these two occasions are happening on the same day. Two boxes, same size, same shape, completely different contents for completely different women. What could possibly go? Of course, the parcels do get mixed up. And the reason that Marnie makes this mistake is she has for a very long time had her eye on moving her business into this beautiful old heritage building. It's very damaged from a fire. It's really dilapidated, but it used to belong to her grandfather, who was a well-known businessman. And so she finds on, out on this particular day there might be an opportunity to buy the, the property. And she's so excited she takes her eye off the ball with the Charlesworth gifts. And before you know it, you've got one hell of a mix-up on your hands. It is one hell of a mix-up. That scene where Brian's wife opens the gift was just excruciating. What do you like as a gift buyer? I'm very bad at it. So I'm curious to know what you're like and what is the secret to being a good gift buyer? Uh, I actually take enormous pleasure in buying gifts and often in making them. I knit and sew and do various things like that. And one of my big problems in life is that I often come up with ideas that are really outside the scope of the time I have available. So a person who can find myself sitting up until one o'clock in the morning knitting leg warmers for somebody because I can just see that what they really need is this pair of leg warmers in this particular colour, but then their birthdays come around too fast. And so basically I... In writing and in life, I have probably more ideas than I can keep up with, but I try to keep up. I love buying gifts. And in writing this book, I've thought an awful lot about them. Mm -hmm. So I looked into the sociology of gift buying and, and gifts go really deep into the human psyche and even in the animal kingdom. So there are various kinds of animals, our closest primate relatives have a kind of gift economy and when we give gifts what we're doing is we are, are cementing the bonds of our relationships so 
even though giving gifts can seem quite frivolous, actually we're doing something quite intrinsic to ourselves as human beings. We're, we are firming up those bonds that help us exist in a social world and exist with each other. Marnie does take her job very seriously and she's very good at it. And yeah, it's for her, it's not just about buying something. It's about buying the perfect something. And there's a lovely line in the book when she talks about her philosophy of buying the perfect book which now I'm not going to be able to find because I unfolded the page but basically it was along the lines of um, that when you get it wrong and you don't get someone the right gift you wonder who they're seeing and so I think she's getting at the point that a gift is about making someone feel seen and acknowledged and appreciated as an individual Absolutely. And a really lovely review of the book in, in Publishers Weekly in the US made that point exactly that in the end, this is a book about the gift of being seen. And one of the ways we tell people, I see you for exactly who you are is when we're able to give them a great gift. I just found this quote that you might be interested in from a French magazine. And this is by a sociologist called Jean-Claude Kaufman. And he says, the beautiful gift has three features. First, this is obvious but should be said, it is beautiful, sophisticated, and its revelation aims to stun and surprise. Then, and this is far more difficult, it reflects the secret desires of the receiver. The gift that creates the strongest sense of wonder and surprise is the one the receiver would have liked to buy themselves but had not thought of. And then the final thing is the astonishment, surprise, and shared intimacy of gift-giving creates a magical moment that pulls you away from your daily routine. Oh my gosh, that is a really high bar to set because my husband recently had a birthday and I gave him a couple of sloppy joes and some undies and I don't think that meets any of that criteria. Like Minnie, what should I have given him? Something, gosh, I don't even know what would fit that. I do find that husbands are potentially the hardest to buy for because almost you're so intimate with what you know of them and you know what they've got, what they need. And I'm big on giving gifts that are practical and will be used. And I'm just wondering, what do you get for that kind of person? That's really hard. I've come around to thinking that maybe experiences are better than actual physical gifts sometimes. But where do you stand on that? I think experiences are wonderful gifts because they build that bank of memories. So if we're looking at creating bonds, those memories are really important. But just to go back to your story about the pullover and the and the undies, if we go right back to bonobos and chimpanzees giving gifts, one of the things they're trying to do is to make, it's often their mate that they're giving presents to, they're trying to make their life easier by giving them something very practical. Mm. So actually right back there in the core of gift giving was survival. You were trying to give your husband more clothing to keep him warm <laughs> and keep him alive. So you're a, you're yes. a good bonobo mate. Win-win. <laughs> I was just sick of looking at the holes in his undies quite frankly and he wouldn't go to the shops to buy them so what I did save him was a trip to the shop so I think that's possibly the real gift in all of that but it's interesting in this book one thing that you do tease out quite a bit is the ethics of employing someone else to buy gifts on your behalf and that's something that becomes a big issue for Marnie and her love interest Luke who just happens to be Brian's son. So where I'm wondering, do you stand on that? Is that like deeply intimate, personal thing, something that can be outsourced? I'm really not sure where I stand on it, to be honest, Cassie. I had an enormous amount of fun getting Marnie and Luke to argue about it. Marnie is straightforwardly a businesswoman at the beginning of the book. She is a bit of a lone wolf. She's She comes from a well-known business family, but her father is the black sheep of that family. So she's not really part of the fold, but mm. she wants to make her mark in the business world. She's ambitious. And so I think it's fair to say she hasn't thought a lot about the ethics. She's thought more about how do I get ahead? How do I take care of myself? How do I create security for myself and my business? And a lot of us in this day and age are familiar with we life is tough sometimes. We are trying to put a roof over our head, feed our children, do all of those sorts of things. And we might not always stop to think about the deeper questions about what we do and why. Mm. So I think she hasn't thought a lot about it. 
But then when she messes up with the Charlesworth gifts and all of a sudden Brian Charlesworth is incredibly angry with her, she's drawn into that family and she meets Luke, Brian's son, and he is very different from Brian. So while Brian feels like money can solve everything, you can just throw cash at a situation and fix it, Luke is much more heart-centred and much more ethical. Mm -hmm. So he really takes Marnie to task. And in that way, he's a little bit of a Mr Knightley, if we're thinking about the relationship between Knightley and Emma in, in Jane Austen's novel. He, so he, I always thought of him as a bit of a Knightley. He holds her to account. Mm -hmm. um, and... I think sometimes he's a bit harsh, actually. Mm, mm, uh, yeah. He can, he can afford to hold her to account. That's the thing. He comes from money. She doesn't. So you can afford to have all the ethics in the world when you've got that stack of cash and dad's cash sitting behind you. That's exactly right. So he doesn't ask his dad for help, but he could at any mm, time. Mm. She doesn't have a dad to ask mm. for help. They're quite different. They're coming from different points of view on that, but it was a lot of fun getting them to tussle that one out. Mm. Yeah, there was some great conflict on the page in those scenes I found and I could really see that you, were, you as the author were tussling with that idea and I just want to talk to you now a bit about the writing process for this book. Each book has a life of its own. They're all hard to write but I'm wondering where does this one sit on the scale of toughness? This is where I get to make a decision about how much of my life I want to put out there into the world but I think it's important to be truthful so I will do that. I wrote this book during a time when I had some really difficult times in my family. So I had someone in my family suffering with mental illness and uh, that was really challenging. Mm. And I'm pleased to say we're all in a much better space now, but we went through a lot during that time. Mm. So writing this book, which was a, it's essentially a romantic comedy, was sometimes really hard to do when I when my life was anything but a romantic comedy. Mm. So I think this book became my doorway into another world, another place that was a bit nicer to be than my life was at the time I was writing it. The book is set in a place called Alexandria Park, and that's where my first novel, Starcrossed, was set. And so I actually made that decision quite deliberately a little way into the writing process. I hadn't known I was going to do that. Hmm. But when I was struggling a bit with my life, I thought, I think I need to build myself a Narnian wardrobe door so I can step back into Alexandria Park, which is a place where I was always very happy. And it's, a, it's an Australian city that I think is the unholy love child of Melbourne, Hobart and Perth. And it's, it's a little bit more airbrushed than reality. Hmm. It's a, quite a whimsical place. I think it's quite a beautiful place. I don't think people have as many struggles in Alexandria Park as they do in the real world. I'm, one of the things I am proudest of with this novel is that I managed to write it at a really hard time personally. Mm. That is no mean feat and I know that uh, writers face different issues at different times and one of the common challenges over the last couple of years has just been COVID and writers saying that it's very hard to get into that whimsical rom-com headspace when things are so difficult. Did you develop any particular strategies for being able to do that? For me, it was during lockdown and homeschooling kids, it was just easing the rules on myself and saying, okay, we well, can't write 2000 words a day, but maybe you can write 1000 and they might be crap, but that's 1000 words further along in the process. And so I just ease the pressure on myself. And did you have any tactics for trying to manage both your personal and your writing life at that? I'm really lucky, Cassie, to have a beautiful home. So we have a little bit of land and I've got a writing studio in the backyard and it's a it's a bespoke timber caravan. If we were still in the world where we could use the expression gypsy caravan without offending anybody, that's how I would describe it, but I have no wish to offend anyone. So that might give people a little bit of a picture of it, though it has a curved roof and slightly angled sides. And so I just had to make the decision that I wouldn't try to write at the kitchen desk, at kitchen table. I wouldn't try to write at my desk in the house. Mm. I would just go up to the caravan open the door, go inside and shut it. And when I was on the other side of that door, I was in Alexandria Park. I had to create that kind of physical distance between mm -hmm. 
my real life and my imaginative life. Of course, that barrier didn't always hold. I had to have a phone available for emergencies and things. So there were times where I didn't get to stay there, but I tried as hard as I could to Mm. maintain the fiction that I had really stepped into another place. Quite a feat of mental gymnastics in a way, but I have also heard of this strategy for people who suffer from anxiety for instance that you can set aside 20 minutes of worry time per day and so you use that time to worry 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 and then after that close the door mentally on that and try and move on but hard easier said than done so I'm just wondering what would an average writing day look like for you are you still doing the day job or is being an author now the full-time gig at the moment what does writing life look like for you my my life is very full. It's a little bit too full, probably. And that's my fault for liking too many things and allowing too many things in. I'm not very good at being restrained. I teach two days a week at the university in Tasmania. So I have writing students and I really enjoy teaching and I enjoy the interaction with my students. (laughs) And I write a column for the local paper here. So that's a nice thing to do as well. It enables me to stay in touch with my community here and write about issues that are important here in my home. And then there's my writing novels. And then there's this other job that you would be familiar with, Cassie, which is the job of being a writer. And I'm not always so good at remembering to leave time for that. I'm the sort of person who I'll drive somewhere and I'll get there on time, but I won't have left time to park the car. I'm a little bit like that with writing. I leave time to write the book and then I'm a little bit surprised by all the other things uh, around the edges of that that need to be done. That extra 10% that's just never quite there. When you walk into your caravan and you sit down, what are the processes that you go through? Do you have any habits? Are you a word count person? Do you just let it come? How do you behave in the caravan? I have developed a process over the years and it's one I've come to rely on. I think I learned it from the days when I was a journalist. So when you're a journalist, you go out and you gather your information, you gather your interviews, you gather what you need to know, and then you sit down at your desk and you're going to have to write the column centimetres that day. You can't choose that you don't feel like it. You've got to do the writing. And so that was great training for me. And one of the things I learned to do if I felt like I'd hit a block was to say, okay, what do you know? about what goes into this story. Do you know the end, for example? Or do you know that this one wonderful quotation has to go in there somewhere in the middle? Or do you know how you want to begin? Mm. So I always start with the bit that I already know. I know this has to happen or I know this is going to happen. So let's start with the chunk I can envisage. So I'm a lot better off when I feel like I know what I'm doing. For me, the thing that turns into a major block is when I don't know how to do something. And then that fear of, I don't know what I'm doing, I don't know how to do this, overwhelms me. It's a bit like that old thing about trying to eat an elephant in one gulp. Mm. You can only nibble at the elephant. So you can only eat an elephant in very small bites. So you've got to go looking for the kind of soft, palatable bits that you can start with, and then you will gradually eat the entire elephant. So does that look like plotting to you or is that just sitting down at the start of the day and saying to yourself, okay, I'm going to write the scene where Suzanne opens the gift and I'm going to have her start off being in a great mood and then by the end of it she's crushed and devastated and thinks the marriage is over and these are the little points I'm going to hit along the way. Is that something you would put down in point form or is it just something that's sitting in your head? Great questions, Cassie. It's like you're watching me work. So once I've decided, okay, I know this scene has to happen. I know there has to be a scene where Suzanne opens the wrong gift. Okay, so let's start with that. What can I imagine? And then just before I do that dot point thing that you're talking about, I try to watch the scene on video behind my eyelids. Mm. Yeah. So I will sit in my chair, close my eyes and literally watch the screen watch the scene unfold as if I'm as if I'm a camera and my, what goes on inside my head is quite filmic it will do the kind of close-ups and the big pan out for me so I'll see the look on Suzanne's face but I'll also see the painting on the wall and what's out the window and all of that detail is not going to go into the scene but I can look around it 
you remember those magic eye pictures? Yes, um, yes, where you, they, put your, you look like at a them. telescope and it changes, it's a kaleidoscope sort of thing, yeah. Yeah, so when you first look at it, all these coloured dots on the page, but when mm. you can get your focal length, you fall into the picture and you can see the three-dimensional shape inside it. And once you've seen the three-dimensional shape inside, it's as if then you can start to look around. Mm. You can almost move your gaze without having to worry so much about where your focal point is. And I feel like there's a moment where I fall into my fiction and I can actually look around that world without so much concentration. I guess that's the flow state. I guess that's where we want to be. So writing is a lot harder when you are really forcing yourself to invent Yes, and it's a lot easier when you're in that flow state and the invention is happening for you at some more subconscious imaginative level. So it sounds like you're almost transcribing what you've seen before you've sat down to write and in that visualising, are the characters speaking? Someone asked me this question recently they asked me do your character do your characters become so real they talk to you Mm. and I thought long and hard about that question because I do have friends who are writers who do feel that their characters talk to them my characters I don't think I exist for them Mm. so they don't talk Mm. to me Mm. because I'm not in their world so they talk to each other and they talk to themselves Mm. so I just see myself as a professional eavesdropper with very privileged access to each of those characters it's so interesting that's such a great way to describe it so you're not too focused on how many words oh no you did mention that you're very practical about it so will you set yourself a word limit for the day or will you just say okay I'm going to write this scene doesn't matter if it's 500 or 2,000 words I have a feeling now I've been writing for long enough that I have a feeling for how long a scene is going to be yeah and I'm usually pretty pleased with myself if I write a scene in a day It might not be finished, but I'm pretty happy if I finish a scene in a day. So that might mean that one day I'll write quite a short scene and then I get the afternoon off to walk my dog or whatever, and other days I'll tackle a really big scene. Uh, And sometimes I don't get nearly as far as I had hoped and I have to come back at it again tomorrow. Sometimes I hit a dead end and the scene I wrote just doesn't work and I was wrong. That scene doesn't fit. It's the wrong one to tell. I need to tell a different scene from these characters' lives. And the sad thing about being a writer is that you often aren't going to find that out until you've made the error. Or It's not actually an error, is it? Until you've done that exploration. So before you sit down to write the entire book, you'll, will you have a sense of the major scenes and the major turning points or will you have a sense of every single scene that needs to happen? Yeah. I have a sense of the big shape of the novel, but I this is something I tell my students at university. There are things you will never know until you are actually writing. You can you can visualise the way I do. You can plot and plan, but there are sentences that will never come out of you, ideas that will never bubble up to the surface until your fingers are on the keyboard and all the pen is in your hand and then you make new discoveries. So I think you have to be very pliable as a writer. Perhaps there are other writers out there who can make it work in a more rigid framework, but I need to be quite bendy so that if something completely new comes at me, I can respond to that. I did read a quote somewhere which comes from the Pantsers manual, which says, book will tell you how to write it if you listen carefully to it. Wow. Gosh, that that is lovely. Now, I'm finding myself occasionally stumbling over your name because you've written this book under the name Mini Dark, but you started your career in writing under your, would we call it your real name or your legal name of Danielle? I'm not quite sure. It's my everyday name. It's the name my my parents gave me. So (laughs) most days of the week, I'm Danielle Wood, Um, but I'm not always. Sometimes I'm Mini Dark. 
Okay. Okay. I really want to explore this because it's very interesting. And there are a lot of writers out there who write under what they call a pen name, but I was so interested to read an article that you wrote in which you explained that to you, it's more than just a pen name or a nom de plume. It's really an alter ego. It's a persona that you inhabit and it affects the very writing process. So I'm just wondering if you can elaborate a bit more on that. I think that when you're a writer one of the things that that you do is inhabit multiple worlds so sometimes people say to me how can you hold all of those characters and all of those events in your head and I said to them you think about it you think about how big your life actually is your family members and their friends and your family tree and actually you've got a huge amount of people in your lives writers are just like that except they're doing it on multiple planes at once so there's the human brain is amazing and there's room for plenty of stuff in there. I feel like I occupy this reality as Danielle Wood and often the novels that I write as Danielle Wood are more set in this reality. But when I knew I wanted to write a romantic comedy, I knew that something quite different was required. Mm. So my the books that I write as Danielle Wood, they can be a little bit dark, they can be a little bit sinister, the happy endings are certainly not guaranteed. So if someone who liked Danielle's books was to pick up a mini dark book, they might be horribly disappointed. But likewise, somebody who likes mini dark books might pick up a Danielle Wood book and just be really disappointed and confused. There is a way in which it's a kind of branding. I remember reading somewhere that someone said that writers and publishers really like, sorry, readers and publishers really like writers to do what's previously advertised on the tin. Mm. They want to know what kind of experience they're buying when they buy Mm. your book. Mm. So having a distinct Danielle Wood and Mini Dark means that readers do know what they're getting when they pick up the book. But in terms of my process and in terms of my lived reality, I do spend quite a lot of time being Mini Dark. So here's some thinking I've done about that. When you read a novel and you it's told in the first person, you're very clear about who that first person narrator is most of the time and often they are somebody in the world of the story. Mm. However, when you read a book that's written in the third person, it's often told by some kind of entity that is outside the book. Mm. But that character we might call a narrator. Mm. Is the narrator the writer? Or, is the, or does the narrator exist in some other kind of space? Is the narrator someone else created by the writer? Mm. So really the first character that you invent when you start writing any book is that narrator, is that narrative voice. And so what I've chosen to do with Mini Dark is to give that narrator really solid presence, actually really create that narrator. Her name is Mini Dark. So when I started writing Starcrossed, the first character I invented in the Starcrossed universe was Minnie herself. And you're so specific about who Minnie is versus who Danielle is. Tell me a little about a little bit about who Minnie is and how you see her. How what is her life? I spoke a little earlier about how life in Alexandria Park is just a little more airbrushed than life in reality. Mm. So Danielle has three children and two dogs and two cats and alpacas and bees and a lot to worry about. She has to pay the bills. She has to take the dog to the vet to get their teeth cleaned and she has to cook clean fold laundry I don't think Minnie does any of that (laughs) she has no children if she has pets they never get sick her life is much easier her life is much more airbrushed her she's she's not her life is not gritty her life is a little bit smoother Mm. this is not to say that there aren't big feelings in her life but there's just not that nitty gritty struggle yeah she's just she's a little more she's a little more upbeat she's a little more cheerful she's a little bit more mischievous she's lighter of heart she's Mm. funnier Mm. oh don't we all want to be Minnie not that Danielle's bad Minnie is just (laughs) lovely and I said to you before we started recording how much you know exactly what you were saying that Alexandria Park is just a lovely world to inhabit and that was certainly the experience I had in reading it but I also was interested in what you said about branding and about readers getting what's advertised on the cover. And 
I've read books by you, both as Danielle and as Minnie, and loved them both equally, but appreciated that they delivered very different things. And I think your work as Danielle Wood, you've written fiction and nonfiction. The fiction, I suppose we would classify as literary, and the books that you're now writing would fall into the category of commercial. What are your thoughts about what is a literary book versus what is a commercial book? Because this is something that a lot of writers struggle to define for themselves and understand what it is that they're writing. So how do you classify it in your head? Okay. I'm going to come at that question a little bit sideways. I'm going to say that there there exists a snobbery around literary fiction versus commercial fiction, and I'm not very interested in that snobbery. I think that there is a distinction, but I'm not all that interested in making that into a hierarchy. Mm. I think that when we go and see films, we accept that some days we might be in the mood for a French art house film with subtitles, Mm. And the next time we might want to go and see Top Gun Maverick. I think we allow ourselves to be much more omnivorous in the films that we view than we are in the fiction that we consume. When I was a teenager, I was reading Jane Austen. I was I love to read play scripts. I would read things like Tennessee Williams plays just for fun. I read 1984 in 1984 when I was. <laughs> only 12. But at the same time, I had a deep love for those romance novels that were aimed at teenagers. They were called Sweet Dreams books. Mm -hmm. I loved them. And I used to read them in a couple of hours. They provided me with comfort. They were predictable. They were joyful. And as a teenager, I hadn't yet really consumed that idea that there was a hierarchy Mm. between the kind of literary fiction I was reading and the commercial fiction I was reading. Mm. So I didn't grow up with snobbery about it, but then I developed it at high school and at university. And so when I became a writer, I defaulted to writing literary fiction, which comes with its challenges. Mm. But there was a corner of my heart that really loves more commercial fiction. I do know that there are some literary writers who every now and then think, maybe I should just dash off a commercial novel to make some money. What I have learned about moving into the commercial sphere, and I've also written for children, so I've written literary fiction for adults, fiction for children, commercial fiction for adults and nonfiction. There is no easy book. Yeah. The easiest is the nonfiction for me, but every work of fiction will take everything you've got. Mm. So whether you're writing as Minnie Dark in a commercial context or whether you're writing as Danielle Wood in a more literary context, you are still giving that book Mm. your heart, soul, lungs, liver on a plate. Mm. It doesn't make any difference. It's still going to take everything. I think the difference, though, here's a thing I learned along the way. Literary fiction is where you're creating something that's never existed before. Mm. So imagine for a minute that you're a dress designer Writing literary fiction is like somebody said to you, make me an evening frock. And that's the brief, make me an evening frock. So you have no parameters about the fabric, the shape, the cut, the colour, anything. You've got the whole world to make anything you want. You're making a whole new thing. And part of the point of literary fiction is writing something that has never existed before. But when you're writing commercial fiction, your client comes to you with a very specific brief and they say, make me a knee-length red satin cocktail frock with a sweetheart neckline and puff sleeves, but make it like a knee-length red satin cocktail frock with sweetheart neckline and puff sleeves that no one has ever seen before. (laughs) I love that. It is so true. We want same but different. Exactly. So that's hard, right? So thinking that you're going to dash off a commercial novel, mm. not books are hard work for mm. if you're serious about it. If you are, I remember reading advice to Mills and Boone novelists, and one of the key bits of advice was you must read and love Mills and Boone novels. You can't do this as a cynical enterprise. And I thought, I bet that's not true. I bet you can do it as a cynical enterprise. Now I'm not so sure. I, now I think. You have to believe in what you're doing. You have to do it with your heart and soul. 
I remember I had a uni lecturer who said something that's always stayed with me and she said there's room for excellence in any genre and I think that's so true it doesn't matter whether you're writing commercial or literary to be the best of the best in either sphere is just as difficult it absolutely is really important and in fact one of the biggest influences on both Danielle and Minnie as writers is a TV program that I watched obsessively in my late teens and early 20s which was called The Storyteller and John Hurt played the the storyteller and he had a, a Jim Henson dog at his feet and he retold fairy tales. Mm-hmm. I, I basically know the scripts of those nine episodes by heart. So that that inculcated in me a deep love of fairy tale. But there's one scene where John Hurt has been brought before the king and he's going to be thrown in the dungeon unless he can get himself out of this terrible situation that he's in. And so he decides to pitch himself to the king as, well, look, I'm the storyteller. And he says, I am not domestic. I am a luxury and therefore essential. And the storyteller is essential mm. in, in our world, mm. and we saw mm. that during COVID. Mm. So when we see arts funding being slashed left and centre and people not being funded to make theatre or make music or make stories or make books, we have to remember where we turned mm. in those days when we were shut in our homes. Mm. We turned to storytellers. Mm. Yeah, and it's across cultures too, isn't it? It's such a... Verbal storytelling is such a huge element of First Nations culture. You're a writer who wants to be versatile and you want to work across genres and flex muscles in different areas. And one thing that's quite incredible with your commercial fiction work is that you often work with quite a large cast of characters. And in this one, we've got... Marnie and Brian and Suzanne and Leona and Luke that I can remember there may be even more than that how do you functionally juggle that many characters are you conscious of giving each one a very different voice or are you coming back to the idea that that as the sort of narrator or perceiver of the story as mini dark there's a certain consistency to those voices even when we're changing characters does that make sense i don't know if that question makes any sense at all but we'll see i am aware of making sure that there is balance between the different storylines but it can be okay for there to be major plots and minor plots and for some to to have a little bit of time in the distance but even those minor plots those characters need to be fully fleshed out so i think Actually, something I really love doing as a writer, I really love creating characters. And that just boils straight down to the fact that I love observing human beings. Mm. Human beings are endlessly fascinating to me. And you know that just about anyone that you meet, if you had time with them to peel back their layers, you would find out so much interesting stuff. People are amazing. And... Characters are a version of people and so you you create them and then you start to peel back their layers and you find mm. out more and more about them. So I think that an important way to do justice to, to your characters is to do that work even with the minor characters, to give them three-dimensionality. So I hope that comes across on the page that I care about even the most minor Mm. characters that I bring in. This is not quite in relation to your question, but just a a slight tangent. I also try really hard not to throw my characters under a bus. Mm. One of the the things that I love about writing romance is you actually don't need a villain. Mm. It doesn't actually have to be a villain in romance. The obstacle or the antagonist in the story is often something internal. It's often mm. choices that you have to make where you have to make a choice between the heart and the head or mm. you, you have um, a choice between an obligation and a desire. So those obligations are internal or that those obstacles are internal. And the way people interact isn't out of 
that black and white good and evil everybody's just doing their best in a complicated muddy world and sometimes mm -hmm. people make poor choices and sometimes people make choices for reasons that make sense only to them mm. so i try to be really generous to my characters so even though in with love from wish and co there is a wife and a lover i seriously hope i have not thrown either one of them under the bus no you certainly haven't i have i had respect for all parties concerned by the end of the book but it's quite a challenge to just hold so many balls in the air when you're writing a book and to create fully fleshed characters with a substantial cast is is very challenging and so what are the things that you start with your character is it their name age stage or is it a lot deeper than that and their motivation and what are their wounds what are their backstories what are their desires or is it more basic? What's their favourite colour? What do they like to drink? What sort of things do they wear? I am really not sure how to answer that question, Cassie. I, I can only tell you that if I got into a lift and I was standing there next to a man in a T-shirt with a pair of shorts and holding a briefcase with a baseball cap on, I would... By, I would be narrativizing him by the fourth floor. I would have started to wonder what's in the briefcase and why that baseball cap? Does he actually go for that team or did someone give that to him? And why does he have mismatched socks? And it, what is that look on his face? What's he thinking about? So I think if you apply curiosity to anyone, mm. answers will suggest themselves. So do you keep notes on those sorts of things, observations that you make in real life, or do the good ideas just stick in your head? I wish I was better at that. I have little notebooks scattered everywhere, and I try to make sure I always have one with me. Mm. The amount of times that I have an idea and I have no notebook handy is just ridiculous. Because <laughs> it's I'm usually when you're in the shower. That's what it always happens to me. I'm in the shower. How I, I'm sure there's waterproof notebooks out there, but I'm yet to invest in. My mum bought one for me. <laughs> <laughs> is, she, is she a good gift giver? Maybe she and I need to um, talk. She can give me my, one of the gift. My mum is the person to whom With Love From Wish & Co is dedicated, and that's because there is an awful lot of her in this book oh, and I, I think that there were a lot of times where when I was writing this book I thought oh mum will enjoy that or I'll just put this little detail in for mum oh. so I did a lot of this for her and she oh. there are some aspects of her character that are just directly thieved so when she was a little girl she went to a birthday party and her mother my grandmother put the present that she'd wrapped for the birthday girl down on the birthday table. And my mother looked at this present and realised the wrapping paper was not up to scratch. The <laughs> sticky tape was visible. The ribbon wasn't nice. And so my mother, at a very young age, decided to sack my grandmother as wow. the present and take over. And she actually did this in a range of areas. She also took over ironing her clothes from her mother. Oh, my gosh. You're giving me so many ideas of to <laughs> how I should do things so shoddily as a mother that my kids just take over. Brilliant. Genius. So, so my mother can be very meticulous. And, in fact, we're having a, a little soiree event to celebrate the launch of Wish & Co. at a property in Hobart that's at 121 Harrington Street. And it is the building that Minnie, that Marnie in the book, that was a good Freudian slip, wasn't it? <laughs> that Marnie in the book desires to buy. Mm. So this property is one of the oldest weatherboard buildings in Hobart. It was featured on Renovations Australia. So you can actually go back through the archives and watch that documentary. If you have a look on my feed, you'll also see pictures of 121 Harrington Street. So that's the building that Marnie lusts after in the book, but it really exists. And the people who own it have been so very kind as to let me have a little soiree event in their front room. So just 25 people are going to get together for champagne, cupcakes, and a book reading in that book, which is one of the key locations of the novel. Oh. And, and my, I, I and did mention a wrapping paper as well, because I saw an, an advertisement, a Facebook post about that event. Did I see that correctly? Is someone going to be wrapping these books perfectly? Yes, my mother. Oh, oh my <laughs> goodness. Why don't I live in Tasmania? This is not fair. I do love a perfectly wrapped gift and I'm not a champion at it. So that would yes, be 
worth it's it. It's all about it's all about the double sided sticky tape. Oh, I don't have it. I'll have to get to Officeworks. Okay. Sticky tape doesn't show not on a wish and co present. Okay. Good to know. Now, I'm conscious that we're running out of time. So just finally, what's next for both for Minnie and for Danielle? Minnie and Danielle are gonna hold hands a little bit. <laughs> oh, um, for the next little while because while they're working on very different books there are also some commonalities so mm. Danielle is working on a novel about Lake Pedder and Lake Pedder of course is the jewel of the southwest wilderness in Tasmania it was drowned in 1972 as part of a hydroelectric scheme the true lake lies underneath a massive impoundment oh. and there's been a an environmental campaign for about 60 years now it was first to save the lake and then since it drowned to restore it because this is the 50th anniversary this year of the inundation there's a lot of energy around the lake now danielle was born in 1972 while the lake was drowning it's a really important story to me so danielle is writing this novel about lake Pedder. so environmental activism is a really important idea there mm. And I'll just say that Minnie Dark's next novel is also going to have a little environmental focus. And if one was an observant reader and one focused on the character of Ivy in With Love from Wish and Co and what Ivy is up to, you might actually find the seed, the germ oh. of Minnie Dark's next novel. Oh, I'm going to go back and look. I did love Ivy. She was cool. Like she was cool in a way that I know I'd never be cool. So I did appreciate her. Anyway, it's been so fun, Danielle, to speak to you. Congratulations again on this book. It was just an utter delight to read and I hope it goes really well. Thank you so much, Cassie. Thank you for your great questions. And yes, it has been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon, and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4WPodcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women. Find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>